Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the May 23rd, 2023 episode of Unchained. If you've been enjoying Unchained, please subscribe to our mailing list for more regular updates. Visit unchainedcrypto.substack.com to join. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained Daily Newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Buy, trade, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Today's topic is the regulatory uncertainty around crypto. Here to discuss are Dan Berkowitz, former counsel at the SEC and former commissioner at the CFTC, and Colin Lloyd, partner at Sullivan and Cromwell. Welcome, Dan and Colin. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here again. I'm very happy to uh, join you today, Laura. This podcast idea grew out of a discussion that occurred at a satellite event during Consensus. This was at Grit House Daily, and Dan and I were on a panel together, and crypto regulation obviously was a big topic then, as it is generally in the industry. And Dan said something that I ended up questioning him about. He said that when CFTC Chair Rostin Benham says that ETH is a commodity and SEC Chair Gary Gensler says that it's a security, that those two statements don't contradict each other. And as far as I understand, I guess this is because securities are a type of commodity. So from like a lawyer's perspective, his statement seems accurate, but obviously from the way that uh, non-lawyers, like real people, I would say, think obviously that, that those two statements do seem contradictory. So um, we will start with this question for Dan so we can uh, kind of use this as the jumping off point. Um, so why don't we just go into your explanation of why it is that you think that those two statements don't contradict each other? Right. Well, well thank you, Laura. First, let me just clarify it's correct. Uh, uh, Chair Benham ha- has said that Ether is a commodity. In fact, this goes back a number of years. This is uh, when Chair Benham talks about Ether being a commodity. This is not really a new position of the CFTC. This is a position uh, of the CFTC going back all the way to 2015 that uh, Bitcoin and other virtual currencies are commodities. It's been upheld in uh, one um, one court case as well. So for the CFTC's position that um, uh, virtual currencies like Bitcoin or Ether are commodities is a longstanding position of the uh, CFTC. SEC has not taken actually a position on whether Ether is a commodity. Uh, the chair was uh, uh, testified before Congress and, and did not say a, a position either way on, on Ether. So technically, the SEC hasn't declared what Ether is. But nonetheless, the, the two statements that Ether is a commodity and it may or may not be a security or if any of virtual currency is a security, 
the fact that something may be a commodity and something is a security are, are not contradictory. Something can actually be both a commodity and a security. The, the confusion in this area, the law is clear. Uh, the law is clear between the difference between commodities and securities, something that can be a commodity, uh, can also be a security. But the confusion arises because people think of the term commodity in a, in a colloquial sense, meaning a good or an article, something like oil or pork bellies. And they think of commodities as tangible things. In the layperson sense, that's, um, that's how we use that word in every day. But the word commodity in the Commodity Exchange Act, which gives the CFTC regulatory jurisdiction, has a technical meaning that is encompasses the ordinary meaning, but it's it's slightly different. And the meaning in the Commodity Exchange Act is the basis for the CFTC's jurisdiction. So in the Commodity Exchange Act, uh, a commodity is defined as, and it lists a number of agricultural goods like wheat, oat, barley, eggs, butter, things like that, cotton. And then it says, and anything else that can be the subject of a futures contract. So a commodity really in the Commodity Exchange Act is a functional definition. It means something that can be the subject of a futures contract. A security, on the other hand, as I'm sure um, listeners are, are, know, is, sub, is, is defined in the Securities Act and, and the Exchange Act. And it includes things like notes, uh, evidence of indebtedness, and investment contracts. And what's an investment contract is subject to the Howey test. So really in both statutes, you have a security and it's defined in a functional way. Um, and then in the Commodity Exchange Act, you have a commodity, which is defined in a functional way as something that can be the subject of a futures contract. Now, the CFTC's jurisdiction over commodities really is is two different types of jurisdiction. What we think of as regulatory jurisdiction to regulate a market is that regulatory jurisdiction really only goes to derivatives of commodities like futures and swaps. So the CFTC, as the name Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and this, Laura, I think this is the way maybe that cuts through the confusion. When you think of CFTC jurisdiction, you shouldn't really be thinking commodity. It's not the Commodity Commission or the Commodity Trading Commission. It's the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. What it really regulates is the trading of futures contracts. And the word commodity in that context is actually superfluous because a commodity is something that can be subject to the futures contract. So it's those two words, commodity and futures, complement each other in that way. So the CFTC's regulatory jurisdiction is over commodity, the trading of commodity futures, not just plain commodities. And now, since Dodd-Frank, that also includes swaps. So looking at CFTC jurisdiction, you say, is it a derivative? And if it's a derivative like a futures contract, then the CFTC has jurisdiction. If it's a security, though, the SEC has jurisdiction. So uh, Chairs Benham's um, statement that ether is a commodity, well, a commodity, if it's a derivative on a commodity, a CFTC has jurisdiction. But if, if it's a security, then the SEC would have jurisdiction. Then there's the special case. Yes, you can have something can be both. It can be a commodity under the CEA and a security. And that would be like a futures contract on a security which be like a futures contract on Apple stock. Um, and that is a security future and both agencies have jurisdiction on it. So 
Yes, it's 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 a little more detailed than the average person on the street who thinks of a commodity as something like a good or an article, and the CFTC would have jurisdiction over that. But it's really the derivatives that they have regulatory jurisdiction. One final point that the CFTC can bring anti-fraud and anti-manipulation for manipulation of a commodity. It's not regulatory jurisdiction. It's enforcement jurisdiction. If there's fraud or manipulation on a commodity, then the CFTC has jurisdiction over that. So that's the basic jurisdictional divide. But when you think of CFTC jurisdiction, you really need to be thinking uh, in, in terms of regulation, regulating markets, futures and swaps trading. That was a super helpful description of yeah the different uh, purviews that the that the two agencies have. Um, I do want to press you a little bit on you know Chair Gensler's position, and um, I'm opening this question up actually also to Colin. So in a February interview with New York Magazine, SEC Chair Gary Gensler said, "quote Everything other than Bitcoin." You can find a website, you can find a group of entrepreneurs, they might set up their legal entities in a tax haven offshore, they might have a foundation, they might lawyer it up to try to arbitrage and make it hard jurisdictionally or so forth. But at the core, these tokens are securities because there's a group in the middle and the public is anticipating profits based on that group. So, you know, at the beginning, he says everything other than Bitcoin. And then he concludes, these tokens are securities. Even though he famously danced around the question of whether Ether is a security in front of um, Congress, from that statement, you can deduce that he would classify Ether as a security. And then in a recent episode of Odd Lot, CFTC Chair Benham, he talked about the process for establishing the Bitcoin and Ether futures contracts, and he described it this way, quote, there's legal analysis done by the exchange. They have to conform with the laws and the regulations of the CFTC. There's open dialogue over sometimes many months to make sure that the contract conforms with our legal requirements. And in the context of the question, because he's responding to the moderator, is it a security or commodity? There's no doubt we within the agency and at the staff level examine the characteristics of a financial asset to ensure that it complies with the law and that it falls within the de- definition of a commodity. And more importantly, is not a security. So that would lead me at least to conclude that he believes that Ether is not a security since they launched an Ether's futures contract. So, you know, now hearing that, do you still think that they don't disagree? And Colin, I'm curious for your thoughts on whether um, it seems like the SEC and the CFTC are disagreeing about Ether status. So let, let me jump in there a little bit. One, one thing that Dan mentioned, which is really uh, important here, is that you can have security futures contracts, which is a special class of futures contract that is based on a single uh, non-exempt security. And then you have all the other types uh, of futures contracts. The other types of futures contracts are subject to the exclusive jurisdiction uh, of the CFTC. And all the regulations that apply to them are various CFTC Regulations were regulated in a particular way. They're not subject to the securities law offering and disclosure requirements. For example, you don't have to have a broker dealer or a national securities exchange involved to trade or clear them. Nothing like that. It's all subject to CFTC rules. Um, security futures are different. Um, they are subject to dual regulation by the two agencies, as, as Dan mentioned. Uh, Bitcoin futures and Ethereum futures were both listed 
by the CME as non-security futures, is what I'll just colloquially call commodity futures. They're subject, traded, cleared, executed, subject to exclusive CFTC jurisdiction. The SEC today does not regulate them um, at all. Now, this there's a long tradition going back many, many years where the agencies would sometimes disagree about the status of different products that the different exchanges, whether securities exchanges or futures exchanges have listed. And typically in those instances, if you know, the SEC you know, thought that uh, a commodity futures exchange was listing a securities product, they'd even litigate you know, against the exchange. We have not seen that here, right? Ethereum futures continue to be listed and traded every day uh, on the CME uh, as subject to exclusive CFTC jurisdiction. So I think when Chair Benham is talking about uh, how the CFTC has looked at those futures contracts, he's talking about concluding that at the CFTC, concluding, including at CME, that those contracts are properly subject to exclusive uh, CFTC jurisdiction. And of course, um, I mean, Dan is right that the SEC at the commission level, you know, has not weighed in on the status of Ethereum. But we do, of course, have um, statements at the staff level, the senior staff level. There's a very famous speech from Corporation Finance Director Bill Hinman uh, explaining that at that time, um, uh, I believe it was 2018, that he did not believe uh, that Ethereum was uh, a security uh, based off the decentralization uh, of the uh, operation of the asset and the relevant network. And there have been no you know, statements um, by the commission itself sort of overruling that view. Now, I think if you want to unpack what Chair Gensler was saying in that, uh, in that New York Magazine uh, interview you referenced, I think the question there is something that, that people have been looking at, which is, you know, have the changes that have taken place with respect to, to ETH in the intervening years, you know, the, the switch from proof of work to proof of stake, the, um, uh, you know, the, the so-called merge uh, and the other changes that have taken place, should that change the analysis? I think most in the community, including it would appear Chair Benham at the CFTC, think no, um, that continues to be the case that uh, the extent of uh, decentralization with respect to ETH is sufficiently wide, that it continues to be a commodity, that even though there is, yes, an Ethereum foundation or other developers, that they are not acting as, I think you said, Chair Gantor's word was middlemen. You know, they're not, they're not a group of people acting as a middleman for the asset. Uh, rather, it's, you know, a group of people who are promoting the utility and use of the asset, much like you have, you know, groups of, you know, many companies promoting the use of gold or diamonds or other types of commodities that where there is uh, certainly various bodies that contribute to the utility uh, of those assets, but that doesn't make the asset a security. No, I, I, th- I think a couple points that, uh, that Colin mentioned are, are significant. First is that the determination, if there were to be a determination um, that Ether were a security, it would have to be by the full SEC as a commission. No, no single commissioner um, could make that determination. So until and I, I don't, I do not know whether it, it will or will not. But until the SEC were to make such a determination based upon you know, factors uh, that that Colin has mentioned, the re- recent recent characteristics of ether, 
than the current situation as it has existed and as the CFTC has found that Ether continues to be traded under CFTC's exclusive jurisdiction under the CME contract, and it's a perfectly legal and valid contract under CFTC jurisdiction. If circumstances change in any commodity such that it loses the, the initial characteristics that make it such, then circumstances change. But that has not that has not happened yet. The SEC, Chair Gensler, has made a number of statements regarding his belief regarding uh, tokens generally. Uh, but until the uh, SEC itself as a commission uh, weighs in, um, the current situation where uh, Ether is a commodity futures contract uh, traded under CFTC jurisdiction continues. I want to jump in on one thing that you just said there, Dan, is that um, this concept that you can have uh, an asset that, you know, begins its life as a security, then becomes a non-security commodity, and then can flip-flop. I mean, I, I just think as a practical matter, that is a very difficult and tenuous thing for her to be you to be the foundation for, for a market, for utility, just from a policy perspective, that creates a high degree of uncertainty. And I think it's, it's interesting because we haven't really seen the courts in other instances, you know, view assets as, you know, moving back and forth. You can have uh, real world uh, uh, assets, physical assets, as well as intangible assets that are sold as part of an investment contract. You know, I, I, I could say I'm going to, uh, you know, but even in the, the famous Howie case, right, that is the origin of all this. You had oranges that were being sold uh, as part of an investment contract. But as I think a lot of people in the community like to say, that doesn't make oranges, you know, into uh, into securities. Right. And so I think that's kind of at the heart of what's uh, at issue here, which is, you know, whether you can have an asset, which is at all times just you know, just an asset. It's just immutable, you know, just computer code that uh, performs certain functionalities. And can that asset embody itself an investment contract? Or is it merely its own thing that, depending on the facts and circumstances, might be sold in a transaction? That's an investment contract, for example, to raise money. But that does not make the asset you know, itself a security subject to SEC jurisdiction. No, but it's a two, it go, it's a two-way street. I mean, I, I think there's people who would like to believe that something can start out as a security. You could start out as, for example, an orange might start out as a Howey contract, part of a Howey contract in an orange grove, but does, that doesn't necessarily mean that all the Howey oranges grown on the Howey farm eventually find their way into Whole Foods or wherever they find their way in, that the person who buys a, an orange that was grown on a Howey farm is purchasing a security from the supermarket. I mean, those types of uh, hypotheticals and scenarios where something could possibly start out as something that's uh, within an investment contract or part of a scheme um, might be at some later point uh, not. So, so the, these things can go back, back and forth. I don't know if, if uh, everything is immutable for all time when it starts out at, at the beginning of its uh, uh, creation. Either way. Yeah. I think the point you're making is a a really good one, which is that, you know, it's one thing if you're buying, you know, the oranges from from Howie and his farm and, you know, giving him money to promote his uh, uh, his scheme. It's another thing if you just happen to buy oranges in the supermarket that the supermarket bought. Right. And I think that's kind of that issue of a lot of what's been going on lately is a distinction, you know, between what people refer to as kind of primary market transactions when you're buying the digital asset from someone who is 
promoting or developing it versus secondary market transactions with people who might want to use the asset to pay gas fees or to uh, govern a smart contract or what have you, um, but are not buying it uh, from the developer or promoter in some sort of capital raising transaction. Yeah, I have a couple of um, quick sort of yes, no questions for each of you. Um, So the first one would be based on the two quotes I gave, the one from the New York Magazine interview and the other from the Odd Lots episode. Do you think that Chair Gensler and Chair Benham agree with each other on this question of whether Ether is a security or do they disagree? I, I don't think Chair Gensler has said whether it uh, is is or is not. He, uh, he, I, he, he hasn't stated whether it is or isn't. And so I can't say that he disagrees with the chair with chair banner because he hasn't he hasn't he's neither agreeing nor disagreeing so but so you don't feel that you can deduce from his statement everything other than bitcoin da 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 is no, a security I'll, I'll answer i'll answer that question no i don't think there is a disagreement at this point between the two chairs interesting i guess I, I guess I would say that um, they certainly have not said things that lead me to think that they agree with each other on this. <laughs> I think it would have been very easy for Chair Gensler to make a statement uh, along the lines that Chair Benham made, you know, in the testimony that you mentioned, uh, Laura, or in the uh, in the, the the magazine interview, and he has not done so. Okay, and then the next quick question is: What do you guys think? Is Ether a security or not a security? Well, my, I, I have to rely on the, the regulatory agencies until the until the SEC were to say it's a security. I can't make a determination that it is a security. So, at, at this point, it, it, it is not because the agency has not said it is. Well, but if so, you used to work there. So, if you were still working there now, and there was an internal discussion, and you were asked your opinion, what would you well, say? I, even even when I was working there, I, uh, it's a facts and circumstances uh, determination, and I was not in the part of the agency. I, I was not. I was not involved in a facts and circumstances determination, so I, I didn't get up to that that point. But but you've never looked into this yourself. Like you are extremely. I I do not have sufficient knowledge of all this. Putting my regulator's hat on, I do not have sufficient knowledge as a regulator to make a determination. I, I it just wasn't. It, it would be a very specific determination based on facts and circumstances, which is what I want the regulator to do. I, I go back to what I was saying earlier. Like I I don't see anything in the case law that tells me that you know some string of uh of uh of digits that you know operates on a blockchain can natively just be a security right you can have a transaction uh, an arrangement a scheme as dan says where you can sell something you could sell anything you can sell you know whiskey barrels you can sell oranges you can sell minks or whatever as part of an investment contract but that doesn't make the underlying asset itself uh, an investment contract. So if I, you know, if I create a digital asset um, and I and I sell it to people to try to raise money to promote the network, um, that can be an investment contract transaction. But when someone else goes and uses the asset to do, you know, whatever they want to do, whatever its utility case is, or to sell it in a secondary market, that's not necessarily part, you know, of my uh, investment contract transaction. And so I, I think it's kind of a a weird question. In some sense, be asking, you know, is this digital asset uh, a security or not? I think you should be asking, 
is the digital asset being sold as part of a securities transaction? That depends on the facts and circumstances, but I think it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, every time the asset is sold, even if it was once sold as part of an investment contract, but it's always and forever subject to that status until there's some mystical event of of decentralization. Okay, so um, we're going to kind of keep playing out the weird scenario. Um, So I was curious, like, if it someday is determined that Ether is a security, that the SEC comes out and says this, or, or somebody does, then what would that look like in terms of registering ETH with the security? Like, who do you think would do that? And then what would that registration process look like? This actually goes to a great point, Laura, which is, let's say the, uh, whether it's ETH or, or some other digital asset, and despite what I just said, someone concludes that the, you know, the asset itself is a security, what would be the consequences? Okay, So if that asset is going to be you know, offered and sold uh, to the uh, to the general public, then there would need to be some sort of registration uh, of those offers uh, and sales. Uh, that would require you know completion of a you know, disclosure uh, document, uh, probably a Form S one with the SEC, which presupposes that there is some some issuer for the asset. That raises a very good question. You know who who would be the issuer uh, uh, for something. Uh, for something like this, the SEC has not provided guidance uh, about who that would be. Second, you know, what would they have to disclose? Well, they would have to disclose a number of things on that form, some of which are uh, probably not very material to uh, to investors. Things like you know, audited financial statements of this issuer, which we haven't identified which party would be that issuer, and wouldn't necessarily include things that are material about you know, the code and, and how it operates and so-called tokenomics uh, and the like. And so you'd have kind of this disclosure document that um, you know, what, what needs to be in there uh, is not really tailored to the asset. And then you have, okay, well, how's it, how's it going to be traded? Well, it, uh, if it's going to be traded on some sort of exchange, at least under existing uh, SEC rules, that exchange would need to register as either a national securities exchange uh, or as a broker dealer that's also registered as what's called an alternative trading system. Now, I say under current SEC rules because Chair Gensler in some of his uh, public statements has indicated that uh, he does not believe that the alternative trading system framework is suitable for uh, digital asset exchanges that uh, have uh, retail customers, uh, which I, I find to be a curious statement because you have uh, uh, traditional equities uh, securities trading platforms that are registered as ATSs who have retail uh, subscribers. But nonetheless, he's, he said they need to be on a national securities exchange, which would require that the, um, uh, that the token issuer be subject to you know, periodic public disclosures, 10Ks, 10Qs. Uh, and again, there's no clear guidance about what they would have to do uh, in that context and how long those disclosure obligations would you know, would continue. And then you have all kinds of questions about, you know, who, how can retail investors get access to it? Would they have to trade for a broker dealer? If it's on a national securities exchange, they would. Uh, but so far, there's not been uh, clear guidance about how uh, broker dealers can trade and custody uh, assets that are on a, uh, on a blockchain. Uh, and uh, whether they can do that would seem under current guidance, they can't even do that uh, while also facilitating non-securities digital asset transactions, 
or facilitating securities transactions that are not digital assets, um, which raises a whole host of, of issues and, and questions that have been uh, put before the SEC. And that, that's just the tip of the proverbial iceberg in terms of as you can go through all the different aspects of the securities laws and the different registration categories for different parties where there have been questions raised to the agency over many years. Um, and most of these questions continue not to have answers. Well, the, the, proce the process is, is um, as Colin has outlined, uh, somebody will seek to registration. There, there's current regulations established now. Um, admittedly, the current regulations were drafted with other types of asset classes in mind. This is a, a new asset class with new new types of issues, but this is not the first time the agency has faced new asset classes with new types of issues. When we moved into uh, basically electronic trading for the first time, moving off the floor, there was electronic communication networks and computerized trading back and forth. And and how do you how how is that new technology work under the current under the then existing regulations? When when for many years all we had was floor traders and floor brokers, and it took. It took a while. It took the industry working with the uh, SEC to develop the types of trading uh, networks that Colin has mentioned, alternative trading systems, and eventually leading to the national market system. That was actually a, took a long time to develop, probably longer than we would want for, for this system to develop. But the process is that registrants come in, work with the agency, see, okay, here's what we can do, here's what we can't do. The agency can grant what's called no action letters to grant no action relief. Here's how you can meet the intent of the regulations. And that process can go forward on a case-by-case -case basis, whereby the agency can, can uh, if there's a certain particular technology that can't comply with a particular regulation, but there's an alternative way that can meet the same standard for investor protection, for market integrity, for whatever, that can be worked out between the agency and the, and the registrant on a, on a process going forward. But Dan, you don't have in mind kind of the who of who would come in and register? I don't know who would be the the, the person to come in for, for for a disclosure statement. If you have an exchange trading ether, you know, the exchange uh, or, or broker dealer and people performing functions of intermediaries in the market, um, those could be uh, readily identifiable uh, who would come in and, and have to submit registration forms for, for their functions. So there's a basic disclosure statement. I don't know. I can't sit here today and say who is the responsible entity uh, uh, for a particular cryptocurrency for, for a disclosure statement. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk about DeFi and other issues. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. 
Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere and get rewarded at every step. Up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Dan and Colin. So in that same Odd Lots interview with Chair Benham, he said in response to a question about DeFi, quote, I think it's easy to suggest, oh, there's no institution, there's no individual, it's just code. You can't regulate it. It's And then he said, it's sort of self-effectuating, but that's really the wrong set of questions. It's really about what are U.S. customers being offered and exposed to, and who is either the individual or the group of individuals who set up that entity, that code, to offer those products. And then he said that he wasn't offering legal advice, but he finished, quote, it really is incumbent on individuals to understand and appreciate that if you're going to offer derivatives to U.S. customers, there is a very well-developed and mature legal base and requirements for complying with the law. So again, I'm not a lawyer, but to me, this sounds like he's saying there's going to be some kind of regulation around DeFi in the U.S. that is based on existing laws. And I was curious, um, you know, for both of you, what you thought uh, regulation of DeFi should look like. Well, the, 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 the question really, both from the SEC, I believe, and the CFTC perspective, as Chair Benham articulated, there are regulations that... Uh, regarding when certain functions are performed in public markets, then the question becomes, who is performing those functions? Who is accountable? And I think Chair Benham has accurately stated, these functions just don't spring out of nowhere without human initiative and development and, and, and capital to make things work in this manner. So the question really is, like, who's, who's doing it? Who's writing the code? What are, what, how involved are they and who, where is the point of accountability uh, going to lie? It, 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 some of these questions are actually difficult questions, exactly where that point of accountability is. But there has to be, I think what Chair Benham is saying is there is at some point uh, an accountable person um, in terms of developing the capital to put the network together, the interface with the public, organizing the code, uh, governance tokens, things like that. There's a number of, of use the word indicia of, of, of control or organization that, that both agencies have been using in, in these types of cases. And it, wait, so just the different entities that you listed could encompass, for instance, the developers, um, node operators on the blockchain, people who I guess are deploying maybe interfaces to access that protocol. So are you saying that all of them would need to be regulated in some fashion. No, I'm, no, I'm, I'm saying you need to you, you need to look at and see who's doing what in, in in this and and is there a is there an organizing person? Is there a control person? Is there a person who's supplying capital? There's a number of these factors that who's making decisions on how this operates. Um, th- things like those are factors that you would need to consider. I'm not saying any one of them is particularly necessarily dispositive in any circumstance, or that all who perform those functions are necessarily liable, but it, it, but there is human endeavor and human initiative in bringing these systems forth. 
Um, and so that's, I think, the, what the regulatory agencies are struggling to determine or looking to determine. And we've seen some enforcement actions along those lines. I think this is um, it's very interesting and, and a little surprising, honestly, that we're kind of people are discussing it in this way. And I, I want to talk a little bit about how these things kind of come up, you know, in traditional sort of non-crypto markets and, and why I sort of feel like we're operating a little bit through a looking glass. Because I think the some of the legal issues here are actually pretty, pretty clear, right? So the securities and commodities laws you do differ from each other in the sense that although both of them have a concept, as Dan said, if you're perform if a person is performing certain re- regulated functions that it needs to register. So if you're you're acting as some sort of intermediary, if you've got a trading facility or platform, uh, you need to register as, you know, a, a broker or an exchange or a futures commission merchant or a, a swap execution facility. That that part is is relatively obvious. Uh, you also have the fact that under the commodities laws, but not the securities laws, there is a separate requirement that all futures transactions uh, done in the United States must be done on a CFTC registered exchange called a designated contract market. So, you know, Laura, if you and I wanted to to enter into a uh, a corn futures contract, just negotiate it here on this podcast, we couldn't do that. You know, that would be illegal. Um, and so that that that's very clear. And similarly, what things that are regulated as swaps can only be traded by retail investors, someone who's not a quote unquote eligible contract participant on one of those designated contract markets. So the commodities laws have this additional point that there's an exchange trading uh, requirement. So I think Chair Benham is correct that to the extent that people in the United States, particularly retail uh, investors, are looking to transact in derivatives, they generally have to do that uh, if it's CFTC-regulated derivatives uh, on a CFTC-registered exchange. Um, But that does not necessarily mean that for things that are securities transactions, you know, that the CFTC doesn't regulate or for transactions that uh, have um, uh, that are done with institutional counterparties that are not futures contracts, that those have to be on uh, on an exchange. Those can be negotiated, you know, on a peer to peer basis. There's no requirement uh, in the securities laws that says that uh, you have to uh, execute a securities transaction on an exchange. And in fact, there are quite active, you know, over-the-counter securities markets uh, that exist. You don't even, it's not even a requirement that you have to go through a broker-dealer. You know, if Dan and I wanted to uh, uh, sell uh, securities to each other, we wouldn't have to necessarily uh, go through uh, a broker-dealer. And that still raises the question about if I come up with some uh, technology that allows Dan and I to, to uh, uh, sell securities uh, to each other. Does that technology result in a registration obligation for a person who creates the technology? But I would submit that uh, this is, again, not a terribly new question. Uh, there are certain technologies that the SEC has uh, had to evaluate over the years um, about whether they give rise to broker-dealer or exchange uh, registration, uh, but they've never suggested that the mere uh, development of you know, like a programming language, a messaging protocol, um, a um, way for people to communicate with each other over the internet 
about uh, securities transactions until recently, I guess, but they've got a proposal out there right now that might change this, but they haven't ever suggested that that results in a registration obligation. So there are things like the FIX protocol, which is the financial information exchange protocol, very commonly used in the securities and derivatives markets as a common means for people to send messages to each other about trading securities and settling securities and derivatives transactions. Uh, in the derivatives market, uh, there's something called FPML, Financial Programming Markup Language, which is a, has a similar function there. Those have been kind of developed on a nonprofit kind of open source basis. No one has suggested that the developers of these messaging protocols and languages that allow people to trade securities or derivatives needs to needs to go out and register. Now, if I set up a, a, a network, a system where um, you have to send your fixed message or FPML uh, uh, message uh, to my system and then my system will match your message with Dan's message and form a transaction, that would have to register, right? But where that's happening just on the open uh, internet on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, there's never been a suggestion that that triggers a registration obligation for someone who has invented the language that allows that peer-to-peer -peer transaction to take place. Now, what we do do is we regulate the intermediary. So if someone, if you don't know how to craft a fix uh, message, uh, and instead you're on some computer screen and you are uh, typing in what you want to trade and you know how you want to trade it, and that computer uh, 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 program is transforming that into a fixed message and sending it along and taking a commission uh, for doing that, the SEC has been very clear that if that's in the connection with a securities transaction, the person who is providing you that software and taking that commission you know, needs to register as a broker-dealer. Again, I don't think this is all all that new. Um, I think what's new is the suggestion that the creation of kind of open source uh, technology protocols that can facilitate peer-to-peer -peer trading now, uniquely when it involves blockchain technology, you know, results in a registration obligation. I think that is a very new, new concept. So Colin, it seems like you don't think that that makes sense if I'm understanding your statements correctly. So if so, then how do you think that these laws should be adjusted, def adjusted for DeFi or um, or how do you think DeFi kind of needs to restructure to uh, kind of fit into these laws? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, there, there are some out of the community that um, have raised a prospect of you regulate apps, not protocols. Um, and I think that, that what that stands for is the idea is that if someone is developing a protocol that enables people to communicate with each other. Okay, um, you don't develop, you don't regulate the software development process. But if someone is deploying that protocol and intermediating the ability for people to interact with each other, providing the mechanism uh, for people to uh, to access uh, that protocol. Um, uh, depending on the way they're doing that, then you regulate that person. You kind of regulate the gateway uh, into the system. Uh, and that can be done uh, to uh, ensure things like where appropriate, that there's, you know, compliance of sanctions laws, AML, KYC, customer protection, disclosure, uh, and the like. Now, I do think it is, uh, I go back to what I said earlier, it is under current law certainly different and in terms of how you treat the securities markets versus the CFTC regulated derivatives markets, because you do have that extra 
exchange trading requirement that I mentioned, which would, I think, need to be modified if people wanted to be able to use DeFi protocols to transact in derivatives, particularly retail uh, uh, derivatives. Uh, but I think that that, and this is consistent with, I think, how the internet has been treated for you know, a long time. We made a decision, I think, in this country with the development of the internet not to regulate the kind of backbone, the, the, the way that uh, people could communicate uh, on the web uh, and the protocols. But we do, do have various types of consumer uh, protection, financial protection, whether it's FTC or, or uh, CFPB or other or, or money transmitter or other regulations or securities or commodities regulations when people are accessing the internet through some gateway, some intermediary uh, that is performing that important function and needs to be regulated in a manner to protect investors and, and consumers. So that was actually the proposal of the DCCPA, the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act that Sam Bankman-Fried was pushing through. And it generated a lot of backlash in the crypto community. But you believe that that actually is the what the most reasonable way to go about it? I think it's very difficult to say that we should have, um, particularly in the retail context, you know, completely... Uh, unregulated um, uh, uh, transactional activity, particularly where there are still people acting as uh, intermediaries uh, uh, who are providing those important um, gateways into accessing uh, DeFi protocols, especially if they're doing that for profit. Um, I think that, that that raises, you know, conflicts of interest questions, customer protection issues um, that, you know, we, you know, in the financial regulatory and financial services context, there's historically been uh, a desire to address uh, to address those issues. Oh, and but when you say for profit, I think it's like the liquidity providers, uh, not the the company that's putting up the interface. That like I don't think they're making money. I think it's right. It depends. It depends. Well, okay, on, right. So, it depends. Yeah, you know, it depends on how people set up their uh, set up their arrangements. But certainly, you know, to the extent that People are again. It needs to be with respect to something under current law. It needs to be with respect to something that is a is a security or is a you know CFTC regulated uh, derivative. As as Dan said earlier, for the um, non derivatives, uh, non securities commodities markets today, there is no federal uh, regulatory uh, requirement. As you said, that was something that if it was going to come about, was going to come about through you know through legislation. But I do think to the extent that someone's stepping into a role as a broker and taking a uh, taking a fee to to facilitate the transaction, or possibly if they're acting, as you said, as a as a market maker. And I want to, you know, be careful because a market maker is a that's sort of a term of art here. But uh, I do think that there there can be a role, um, but I don't think that role should necessarily foreclose the ability for people to develop, you know, open source software protocols for to allow peer to peer interactions. Yeah, I, ju- I just want to em- emphasize that point. It's really a functional analysis. It's like, what is the function that, that the person is doing? It's, is it a function of a broker dealer? Is it a function of an exchange? And that, that's really the, that really should be the focus of the question, not simply writing code, but how are they actually performing or is the, the code that they're writing actually performing that function? And Dan, what do you think? How do you think DeFi should be regulated? Do you think laws need to be adjusted in any fashion? Well, I think that the law, the laws right now, I mean, it's interesting having this discussion now. This we we talked about this uh, last time I was previously on the show. The, the the Commodity Exchange Act is 
it's it's unlike and you know, Colin accurately uh, d- described it. It actually prohibits the transaction if it's not on a on a regulated exchange. It doesn't reg- it so retail people can't do it. It's not just regulating the inter- intermediaries. Um, both statutes, both the Commodity Exchange Act and the securities laws, are technology neutral. The you know, things about investor protection, market integrity, um, all, all these have just been tried and true principles over over many lessons learned, unfortunately, for many people over many decades, the really fundamental tenets of our capital uh, formation and our risk management um, processes. And, 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 and they've worked, uh, I think, through the te- through, over time, we've developed uh, extremely robust uh, protections for our markets. This is why our markets in the U.S. are the strongest markets in the world. We have the strongest capital formation markets. We have the more, most robust and strongest risk management markets on the CFTC side, the capital formation markets on the SEC side. And we, it's, they have developed new technologies. They have um, uh, dealt with innovation in the markets. The financial markets today don't look like anything. The financial markets, when I grew up, certainly, when I used to go to the bank and get you know take money in, and they used to stamp my bank book, and I couldn't get any interest on my checking accounts, and there were no money market funds. And all those, and none of them actually, many of those innovations, not as now they, they seem as simple and obvious as roll on luggage, were, were actually really innovative at the time and difficult to get through the system. I mean, not so there were all there were entrenched interests that opposed many of those reforms. So, I mean, DeFi should be regulated. Uh, there's no exception for any particular technology, and it needs to meet the same principles. Now, it's a different technology, and there may be specific different specific issues that need to be addressed and those can be addressed uh, within the current uh, within the current regulatory system I do believe there is a gap right now not so much on DeFi but this area we were talking about legislatively with the uh, non-security commodity uh, uh, market uh, like Bitcoin uh, for example that there is you know, for an exchange in the US trading Bitcoin, there is no regulatory uh, oversight uh, on that. There's the CFTC's anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority, but just a Bitcoin exchange, uh, spot market Bitcoin, uh, there's not a, a regulatory agency in charge of that. So I believe that that's a gap. Just to be clear, Dan, we're not a federal regulatory agency, right? There are, there are pretty comprehensive and, and extensive state regulatory uh, regimes that exist. You know, a lot, a lot of the, you know, we have spot of you know, Bitcoin exchanges, for example, in this country that are very heavily regulated by New York State and other. They're regulated for, cert- for certain purposes, but we don't have the n- same type of national regulatory system with market integrity, anti-manipulation. We, we have state regulation, which gets to um, n- certain issues, but it's, it's not an overall comprehensive federal regulatory scheme. And I think uh, it, it could be helpful to have that. Well, I would think, you know, there are the two, the, the two candidate agencies, the SEC or the CFTC, to do that. I think that either agency could do it. I think that the CFTC, um, in, in terms of uh, adapting its, uh, its regulatory regime to cover that, it, it could work well within the CFTC regime. CFTC has Bitcoin futures, as we've talked about, Ether futures. They've got the futures on, on these leading, uh, certainly leading uh, commodities right now. So to have that spot market authority... Uh, would complement that authority, and and I think it could close a significant uh, significant regulatory gap. 
Um, if the CFTC were to get that authority, it would need resources to do it. And so I would urge, uh, if that's going to happen, that there be a dedicated funding source to give the CFTC the additional resources to do that, because the last thing you'd want is uh, ha- CFTC to have to divert the resources now that are overlooking the wheat and cotton and oil and gas markets all, all moving over. Uh, so they need the additional resources. And you, you could, the, the other thing I would add is the, the initial gate, gating issue. There's an initial gating issue on, on a product that will still arise. Is this a security or is it a, a commodity? Is it now, now that question would actually be very relevant. Is it a security or is it, is it a commodity? It would, if it's a commodity, like Bitcoin, it goes to the CFTC. If it's a security, it would go to the SEC. So there's a gating issue. And I think the gating issue of whether the instrument is a security would have to be decided by the SEC. So somebody would want to trade an instrument on on CFTC exchange a that they assert is a non-security commodity. They'd file an application, a product certification, traditional CFTC process would be file product certification with the CFTC. I think in this instance, you would have a bifurcated uh, process where the CFTC would get the certification for meeting CFTC requirements, but the SEC would have to make an additional determination of that it is not a security in order to get it on the CFTC exchange. Because the last thing you'd want is for the CFTC to put it on and say, oh, it's a commodity, and the SEC saying it's a security. The way the securities laws works now is the SEC says whether something is a security or not. They've got the expertise. The CFTC deals with things in its space very well. The SEC is deals with its space. So I would keep the two separate. I would have a, a, a the gating. Is it a security? If not, then it goes over to the CFTC facility. And actually, I think that would solve one of the current problems is or could potentially is what is it, right? You would have actually a gating decision made under that process and people would know, okay, it goes here or it goes over here. So I, I, I think that that would, that would be a process that could answer some of the uh, current current uncertainties over what these products are. You send it to the CFTC. The SEC would say what, whether it's a security or not. If it's not, it goes on the CFTC facility. End of uncertainty. Um, so I also, you know, wanted to ask. Uh, we were kind of talking about different types of decentralized finance, and um, I brought up an example that you know, basically was a decentralized exchange. And as we know, the SEC is proposing to change the definition of an exchange. And it's implied that it believes that decentralized exchanges fit the definition of an exchange simply because the assets they trade are securities. Um, If I, you know, got that wrong, feel free to correct that. Um, But my question is, so if that, you know, is the case, then it seems like decentralized exchanges would also need to register either as national securities exchanges or as alternative trading systems or ATSs. And do you agree that that's what the SEC is trying to do? And do you think that makes sense for DeFi? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I, I'll, I'll jump in first. Um, so, you know, this proposal that Laura is mentioning, it's actually a re-proposal. So the SEC put out a proposal uh, last year, got a lot of comments, people raising questions about whether the proposal, you know, did or did not apply to DeFi, for example, because it was expanding the SEC's definition of what constitutes an exchange to pick up things that called uh, communication protocol uh, systems, uh, which was an undefined uh, term. And the SEC, you know, recently decided to reopen the comment process to get more 
comments and, and in so doing, mentioned a lot of the points that Laura stated. And I think most surprisingly, uh, essentially said, uh, and I'm, I'm heavily paraphrasing here to summarize, you know, but if you've got a, uh, a protocol, communication protocol, a means for people to kind of exchange information uh, in order to form the terms of and execute, you know, a securities transaction, and you're quite right that there has to be a predicate, you know, securities uh, transaction uh, involved, then basically someone's got to stand up and register uh, as an exchange or an ATS uh, in connection with that protocol. It could be the person who uh, wrote the code. It could be the person who deployed the code onto the blockchain. It could be the uh, person who um, provides an interface to access the, the protocol. Uh, it could be the governance token holders would have to designate someone. They say, you know, it could even be the case that the miners or validators in the blockchain uh, need to designate someone or they have to cease mining or validating transactions on that protocol. And there's some suggestion that if you had a, a situation where a protocol that was deployed uh, was deployed in kind of an immutable code, where there would be no one today who can actually uh, step in and assume responsibility for what's taking place there, because if something went wrong, they couldn't do anything about it. The code is immutable. The suggestion there, and this is in the cost-benefit section of the release, is that um, the community would need to fork uh, that protocol into one that could be compliant. And, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying uh, uh, a moment ago, which is that it seems a little strange to me because today, in the traditional securities markets, uh, groups of people get together and developing develop common messaging protocols to exchange information over the public internet about securities transactions. And there's no, been, never been a suggestion by the SEC, not even in this release, that if you do that, um, you need to register. Uh, uh, someone has to register with respect to those messaging conventions as an exchange. And there's even statements in release that say, well, if you provide, if you have some sort of system, some software system that allows people to manage for orders and message each other with those orders, and that's deployed by a, a broker or an advisor as part of a broker or advisory business, you know, they, they probably don't need to register either and they request comment about that. And this suggests to me that the SEC is maybe taking uh, an inconsistent approach here, that where you have technology protocols that are used for people to communicate their trading interests with each other um, that don't involve a blockchain, then you know, those can continue to exist unless you're actually kind of operating, you know, operating a, a, a system where, you know, your own facility where you control what's going through the system. But if all you're doing is providing the means for people uh, to communicate uh, directly with each other, there's not necessarily a registration obligation. But once that happens using a blockchain, all of a sudden there is. And that, that I think, is inconsistent with the kind of technology, as I think Dan's correct, technology neutral um, approach under the statute, under the securities laws, which shouldn't really distinguish based off of the form of a technology, but rather the function and how it's deployed and who has control over it. Right. But this is why I was surprised earlier when you said that you felt that some entity would have to register because just even the way you described it, like earlier when you said, you know, either the developers or the node operators or some, like somebody, but I feel like even just the way you described it sort of underscored that 
or at least I, you know, the crypto community for sure would say that sort of underscores how decentralized the whole venture is where you have all these different entities that are putting this thing together, but they're not necessarily working in concert. So, so it's just like, I find it, um, yeah, like contradictory that earlier you were saying, well, somebody will have to register. It will be maybe the front ends or some, uh, some, some entity like that. Um, but then even just in your description of how it all gets put together, it's very clear, like these aren't all actors of the same entity. So let me, let me, let me just clarify that then, Laura. So I think that, you know, if um, someone is providing uh, an interface uh, that is allowing a, a person to, um, you know, to communicate uh, um, their, you know, create form an order and send that order uh, over um, the internet, whether the internet is, you know, the, the um, you know, traditional internet or whether it's using uh, blockchain technology or not, um, send that order to, to execute a, a transaction in a security. Again, it has to involve a security. Um, and they take some sort of transaction-based compensation for doing so. Historical SEC precedent, staff level, would suggest that they need to register. Now, there are certainly questions about whether the courts would agree with that today. Um, they're you know, merely taking transaction-based compensation, but without uh, performing any kind of discretionary services may not be enough under some of the case law out there. Uh, but I guess my point is that if, if we're given the, if we're kind of constructing what we think is the future state appropriate uh, policy choice with respect to, uh, to DeFi, and you're trying to figure out who among the, within the ecosystem, you know, might be an appropriate uh, actor to regulate, I was submitting that the developers of a protocol and the protocol itself, which as you correctly note, had all these decentralized actors, that's probably not the right place uh, uh, to regulate and hasn't historically been how we've regulated the markets. But if someone is stepping up as an intermediary, is exercising control over the, uh, uh, the transmission of orders, how those orders are routed, taking a commission for doing so, that looks, starts to look a lot more like a brokerage function. Um, that may be more appropriate, um, you know, again, uh, not not regulate them necessarily as an exchange, uh, but have a more appropriate place for the regulation to, to take hold, as opposed to someone who's just providing kind of a passive uh, communication um, uh, uh, technology, just like a messaging service where they're not performing any kind of meaningful discretionary role or taking a commission or anything like that. No, I was, I was going to say, just take, taking a step back, uh, the Securities Exchange Commission and the Securities Exchange Act, when it regulated exchange and set forth a definition, definition of exchange in the 1934 Act, it was obvious what an exchange was. It was the New York Stock Exchange. And the basic fundamental purpose of that 34 Act was to regulate the New York Stock Exchange. And there was a building and there were people in it. And you knew who was doing what. It was obvious who was doing what. And now we are. Um, 90 years later, and it's not. This discussion, it's, 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 a, it's a great discussion, but it's really an attempt by the agency. What is an exchange? It's, it's not, we're not dealing with the floor of the NYSE anymore. It's this thing that people are writing code, they're putting it together. It's a, it's a whole network of communication. At what point does that diffuse network actually coalesce and constitute what is meant in, in those words in the Exchange Act and the definition in the statutory definition, the regulatory definition, that the, the, the 
the supplemental release that the SEC put out, and you look at all the questions in there and what they're trying to elicit and get input, and I'm really looking forward to that that input. It's going to be fascinating to see where does the point of accountability lie? At what point does this do these functions coalesce into an exchange? Is it correct that protocol systems, the communication protocols, um, so... But finding that, as, as Chair Benham said, finding that point of accountability—that's the—that's that's the key question. So the, the comments on this are going to be really interesting and important to inform the agency. Um, but that's what they're struggling with: how to adopt that 34 Act definition into the into this really new 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 era, new technology. I think what's really kind of troubling about some of the stuff from that release, Dan, and and it's kind of implied, I think, by sort of what you're saying is there is this assumption that there there must, because people can transact with each other using some sort of technology, that necessarily means that there must be someone who provides that point of accountability and access the exchange. And and I go back to what I was saying earlier, in the securities laws, not, not like the CFTC's rules, but in the securities laws, there is no requirement that people trading in securities have to trade on an exchange. Peer-to-peer securities trading is permissible under our laws. And so this kind of like hunting around to try to find someone who is accountable, who's going to stand up and register as an exchange, I think kind of turns the purpose of that requirement on its head. So that per- the requirement for an exchange to register is because there is, as you said, you know, some group or body, some organized group or body like the New York Stock Exchange, you know, who is providing that intermediation function and therefore needs to be regulated because of a risk um, that that intermediation function poses from a market integrity, investor protection, et cetera, perspective. But there's, if there's no one performing that function, if you and I are just communicating with each other using some sort of messaging protocol over the Internet, why is it necessarily the case that someone has to raise their hand and be accountable for sitting in between us and controlling what we're doing? Well, I think the question is, is somebody setting up a system to facilitate? Are we just doing it on our own or somebody, somebody establishing a system that enables, you know, it's one thing if you and I say, hey, Colin, let's let's meet after this and let's let's do a securities transaction. It's another thing if we come in to some centralized thing on our computer screen and we have to and we happen to meet, meet each other. And I think it's that latter, which is really the agency is trying to get at it's if somebody's facilitating us getting together if somebody's establishing a system where where we can where we can do it and we hunt out various other people or not should use the word hunt out we find other people to do it it's whether whether the system essentially meets this functional equivalent or the functional definition of, of an exchanger. What should the functional definition, where should the line be? I think that's the central question that the agency's trying to say. Where should the line be between what you're talking about and what the exchange is? But there should be a line someplace. And I think the agency is trying to find the right line between allowing people to communicate with each other and yet uh, uh, regulating the function of bringing these people together and facilitating that. So I'd see it as the agency trying to find that right line uh, and they'll get comments. They'll get comments whether their line is in the right place or they're overreaching. The line is in the the wrong place. But I think that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. And knowing the crypto community, they will get many comments. 
So in late April, Coinbase filed a court action to try to get the court to compel the SEC to respond to requests for rulemaking that was submitted last summer. And this past week, the SEC responded, basically saying that it was going to ask the court to refuse Coinbase's request for the clarity on rulemaking. So if the court sides with the SEC, then that will leave kind of the current approach to um, regulation, the SEC's current approach to regulation, which is what many people in the industry call, quote, regulation by enforcement. So Colin, I recognize because you're at Sullivan and Cromwell, you cannot speak to the Coinbase case specifically, but I think um, both of you could answer just generally, would you agree that the SEC's current method for regulating the crypto industry is regulation by enforcement? And if so, do you think that that's the right way? And if you don't believe that's what they're doing, then how would you characterize it? So I guess I'll, I'll start off. I mean, I'll juxtapose what we're seeing now with the development of the kind of electronic, you know, equities trading market that Dan mentioned earlier, right, which took place, as Dan said, over a period of many years, multiple no action letters eventually codified uh, in rules where the SEC over multiple administrations uh, took a real effort to try to facilitate and promote the use of, of technologies to provide clarity. Um, when people came in and asked questions, uh, they gave answers. Uh, when they needed things to be uh, tailored, um, they uh, provided relief that enabled that tailoring, and they sought public comments, held roundtables, got 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 a lot of input along uh, along the way. What they did not do is go out to people who were starting up these, you know, what were called electronic communication networks at the time, sort of brokers providing kind of exchange-like functionality, um, and they didn't go to them and say. Um, you know, come in and talk to us and register. Uh, and if you uh, don't register in exactly the way you want, we want, we're going to sue you and then start suing them. They did not do that. Um, and uh, I think that the, that prior model, you know, worked, right? It, it, it ensured that the technology was able to develop um, effectively. It gave people uh, legal uh, certainty. You have similar things. When people were developing the, um, uh, on the product side, developing the OTC swaps market uh, back in the 70s and more more significantly in the 80s and early 90s, um, there were very real questions about whether those uh, financial products were uh, illegal off-exchange futures contracts. Uh, and what the CFTC did is it worked uh, with market participants. It came out with a policy statement that explained, essentially provided a safe harbor for when those things you know, would not be subject to CFTC regulation. It later codified that uh, in a um, uh, in an exemptive uh, uh, rule, and it provided that kind of uh, legal uh, legal certainty. Um, and I think that what that is a, a a better model. And you know, the CFTC over time started raising questions about whether they should make changes in that area. And probably some, looking with hindsight from the 2008 financial crisis, would say, yeah, they probably should have done you know, a bit more than in the late 90s, but there was a process for them to engage. But we, again, what they weren't doing was going out and, and suing people who were trying to raise questions with them and engaging with them. Um, and I think that that was a more constructive uh, approach than what we see, uh, what we see today uh, with, uh, with the SEC. Well, I, I, uh, I, I think the uh, pr previous uh, model, which uh, I mentioned and which Colin just mentioned uh, of, of how 
new technologies get integrated with current regulatory systems. It's worked. It works. It's worked at the CFTC and it's worked at the SEC, whereby, and I've sat in the position prior to being at the SEC. I said, the CFTC, people would come to me and say, we, can you do some regulations? We want regulations in this area. Give us clarity. And I'm sitting there at the CFTC saying, well, in all humility, I don't know what to do. I mean, I don't know where this technology is going. If we lay down rules now, by the time we get done with the rulemaking proceeding in two to three years, the technology will be very different. And that that was that was correct. This technology is changing very rapidly. And in that situation, I think it makes sense to proceed on a case-by-case basis where you give uh, you no know, action letters, people come in. It's the same model that was used uh, uh, to develop uh, what eventually became the alternative trading systems and regulation NMS. So it took it took a while, but it it did work where the industry and the agency worked together. Whether the agency uh, promulgates a rule or not, or chooses enforcement, I mean, th- this is what agencies think about, and this is what they do how, how to proceed. I I think that model works well at the CFTC when I was there uh, until 2021. One of the things that we did in the, in the last few years I was there is we codified a number of no action letters that were issued in the last 10 years uh, following the Dodd-Frank legislation because the agency couldn't figure out there were still outstanding issues uh, pending uh, from Dodd-Frank and the regulations didn't quite fit and the agency gave no action relief with specialized circumstances. If you follow this, these, these conditions, we won't take enforcement action. And after a number of years, the agency and the industry became comfortable with those no action letters and those were put into regulation. So I think this process of, uh, this, this process, this process can work. The one factor, well, two, let me mention two things. One is the enforcement of the securities laws against entities for violation of registration requirements did not start with the current administration. Um, go, go back. This has been, there have been enforcement actions taken in, in both the current administration, the previous administration, the Telegram case, the Kit case, uh, the, uh, other cases. So, so enforcement just didn't start immediately. But what also we've seen recently is we've seen actually investor harm and public market harm. And the agency can't sit by and not take action where there is the potential for uh, investors to get hurt for markets uh, uh, to, uh, to to for there to be risk in the market. So enforcing uh, the, the the regulations uh, is, is something the agency is charged with doing, and and where there's the potential significant potential for investor harm, as we've seen recently, um, that that makes it imperative, I think, for the agency to take enforcement action where it sees violations. That doesn't mean the other track has to stop. It doesn't mean that you don't continue to work with other market participants and you continue to find find ways to go forward. So I, I see the two tracks of enforcement plus developing um, uh, developing a framework through an iterative process. I see both tracks being able to continue uh, simultaneously or concurrently. I guess I get concerned, Dan, where it seems like uh, today only one of those tracks uh, is continuing. Um, and the, the one you mentioned, the kind of open door to figure out how to register is is not. And I think that enforcement is not a very good tool uh, if it's not paired with a viable path uh, to registration. If you if you sue someone for failing to register, um, the court can't make them come in and register in the 
still not yet created registration regime that would be appropriate for uh, for the activity. Um, and you, you still have to pair it. If you're going to do that, you've got to pair it with a real open door um, and, a, and a proactive and collaborative approach to permitting people to register. Uh, and unfortunately, I just as a factual matter, we, we don't see that. Right. There aren't there aren't a lot of people who are registered. It's not a situation where there are multiple crypto asset securities, you know, trading platforms that are registered and the SEC is going after the recalcitrant folks. You know, we have a situation where there are none, uh, at least for retail, there's none uh, that are registered. And I don't think that's for lack of trying. Because of time, I just want to ask this one last question. Um, Representative Tom Emmer and Representative Darren Soto have introduced the Securities Clarity Act. And it's based on um, what they say is the fact that existing securities law does not distinguish between an asset and the securities contract that it may have been a part of. So, for instance, if a cryptocurrency initially was issued as part of a securities um, contract, but then uh, later becomes fully decentralized, then at that point, it could fall under a different classification, such as a commodity. And so the um, bill proposes that any asset that is sold as part of an investment contract could later be distinct from the securities offering. So I was curious, first of all, what you thought of that bill. And then just generally, um, because we keep hearing from the crypto industry that they feel that the lack of clarity around regulations in the U.S. is causing a lot of crypto entrepreneurs to leave and that they feel this is going to hurt American competitiveness generally. I was curious, you know, if you first of all thought this bill was good, um, if you thought regulation uh, was affecting American competitiveness, and if you thought this bill would be a good step toward, you know, alleviating that. This this is something, th- this concept, um, and we talked about it with the oranges, is, is a concept that uh, I've actually it's, been spending a lot more time recently on look, looking into and, and, and uh, somewhat prompted by, by the legislation as well. So I haven't, I haven't landed exactly yet where I am on this, but uh, it's, there, there's a lot, lot going on there conceptually right now. So uh, it's an interesting concept, but I haven't quite landed where I want to be on it yet. Yeah, I guess I would say on the, the latter half of your question, Laura, I, I do think that, um, we have seen other jurisdictions take more proactive steps, most, most notably Europe lately with, with, with MICA to provide clarity and to provide kind of a, a regulatory scheme that is tailored you know, to this asset class. I won't you know, speak to whether everything there is perfect. I'm sure it's not. Um, uh, and a lot of that will have to get uh, uh, you know, addressed through the technical standards, those so-called level two process over there. Um, but I do think that as other jurisdictions move ahead with providing uh, tailored regulations for this uh, for this asset class, uh, if the U.S. does not do that, um, I think the natural consequence is people will go to where there's legal certainty. Uh, we've seen that time and time again across across history, and I think that that history is likely to be repeated unless we are able to provide, you know, similar level of certainty here. And Dan. You know, how do you think all of this impacts U.S. competitiveness? Well, I think I, I obviously uh, uh, very much pro pro uh, our, our markets, and, and um, we we have, as I mentioned, we have the, the strongest markets. Um, I, I want to see us move forward. I, w- I want to see um, us have a compliant, fully regulatory regulated market where people can trade in the U.S. and the technology development continues. Uh, 
uh, to occur here in the U.S. Um, so we have, but we have to protect our markets. And the reason we have the best and the strongest markets is because the robustness of our investor protections. People put money into U.S. markets because of of the robustness and the legal certainty that they'll get they'll get a fair deal in our markets. You may win, you may lose. You're not going to get cheated out of your money. And 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 both in the security side and the commodity side, even if the intermediary that you give your money to blows up. Okay, we've got systems that you can get your money even if your intermediary blows up. And so people, we we have these various really strong market protections and investors come here. We're still going to be the strongest market in the world. I don't want to see us lose competitively, but we have to ensure that we maintain the level of integrity of our markets, keep an eye on what the Europeans and what they're doing. But we've also seen... Uh, you know, one of the reasons we deregulated the swaps market in 2000 was because the we were concerned about losing competitiveness over there. That was one of the arguments. We, we've heard these arguments before, legal certainty, competitiveness. We got to keep up with them. We've changed our regulations. And we deregulated the whole swaps market. Uh, those were two significant reasons. And that blew up on us later. So yeah, let's protect our markets, but let's also be competitive and let's let's work together to keep the process going forward. Uh, uh, all, all sides have to work, go forward. The regulatory agencies have to work with the industry. The industry has to work with the regulatory agencies and we'll continue to have the best markets in the world. Great. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work? I've got plenty of statements from my time at the CFTC up on the CFTC website. Uh, uh, so. Um, Feel, feel free to Google me. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to send messages to me, write to me. Um, always, always love uh, corresponding with people. And, and whether you agree or disagree, uh, please go ahead. And, and you can uh, find me on the Sullivan and Cromwell uh, website, uh, solcrom.com, uh, and also on uh, LinkedIn. Perfect. You guys, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. Uh, There was just so much to cover. We didn't get to all of it, but we got to most of it. Thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Dan, Colin, and all things crypto regulation, check out the show notes for this episode. For transcripts of the episodes and premium interviews, please consider joining our premium subscriber group. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Sriram, Ginny Hogan, Jeff Benson, Leandro Camino, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and Margaret Curia. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.